Faces. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an associate professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Good day, everybody. This is Scott Allen, and uh, we have a really fun conversation today on the show. We have Barbara Kellerman. Uh, Many of you know her as the James McGregor Burns Lecturer in Public Leadership at Harvard, the Kennedy School of Government. Now, she has been published in the Harvard Business Review, Leadership Quarterly. She's authored so many books, Followership, The End of Leadership. She has authored Professionalizing Leadership. And today we're going to talk about leaders who lust. And I'm really excited for this conversation, Barbara. Thank you very, very much for coming back to the show. We talked about a year ago, and at that time, we talked about professionalizing leadership. And like I said to you before the show, I'm about a year behind you. So next summer, we'll get to the enablers. And I'll put all of your latest work in the show notes so that people can get that as well. But I also said to you before we started the show, I would love to talk a little bit. I've been having these conversations with Sincheri and Denny Roberts and really kind of going back to some of these initial conversations where you all and your name came up often, 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 uh, you all gathered these thought leaders from these disparate areas and disparate parts of whether it was uh, student affairs, whether it was business, psychology. Would you talk about some of those early days of the International Leadership Association and just what some of those conversations were like and how they informed maybe your path forward? Well, I, this started, uh, the idea for this, I think, originally came out of the University of Maryland. Uh, there was a group that had been supported by the Kellogg Foundation, which at the time was very interested in leadership. And it was a time when not many were all that interested in leadership. It has since become rather uh, a hot topic. Uh, I sometimes now call it the leadership industry because it's a big money maker for some people. But at that time, it was not nearly as codified or reified. So uh, at the University of Maryland, I was running something called the Center for the Advanced Study of Leadership, and the woman uh, whose name will be familiar to many of your listeners, Georgia Sorensen, was there and responsible for the larger enterprise. We came up with the idea of starting an association that was really geared particularly to people who were specifically 
interested in leadership. And the name, which was ILA from the start, International Leadership Association, worked very well then, meaning we wanted it to be not just domestic, but international, meaning we wanted it to be specifically about leadership, and meaning we wanted it to be a professional association, rather like other associations, doctors and lawyers and management professionals. And we started rather small, but it quickly became apparent that there was not a huge audience for this. And I think that still exists now. It's not as if we rival some of these, uh, the ILA rivals some of these other organizations, but it seems to have early on found something of a niche. And I think that niche is sustained to this day. I Cynthia Cherry would know this a thousand times better than I. In fact, I don't know it. But it seems to me that it has grown somewhat over the years, but it's not as if its numbers are now vast. But they are sustained and they're growing somewhat. Uh, the international part continues. I think it has lived up to some of its early promise. I think in some ways it's not quite what I originally envisioned, but that doesn't make any difference. I think People are generally very happy that it exists and very happy to be affiliated with it. And I continue to be very, very supportive of it and glad that it has lasted and been uh, sustained over the years rather than quietly folded, which so often happens with these kinds of initiatives. Well, I can tell you for the last year and four or five months, I've been having conversations with folks in Australia and New Zealand and Europe and all over the world. And they're members of ILA. And it has been my professional home for probably almost a couple decades at this point, probably 15 years. (laughs) So you being a part of that at the beginning, I say thank you because you created something that definitely changed my life. Otherwise, I'd be stumbling around Academy of Management with my 30,000 best friends. (laughs) (laughs) And we would just be a network of leadership scholars. We wouldn't have our own thing, right? (laughs) No, I, I think that's, I think you're really summarizing it very well. I think for those of us who are really just interested in leadership, and by the way, I want to throw in the word followership because I, like a handful of others, are every bit as interested in followership as I am in leadership. I wish it had gained more traction, but that is the idea of followership. But I do think it is continuing to gain traction as people are starting to realize the world is often driven not at all by leaders, but by their followers, especially in the third decade of the 21st century. So I think for people who are specifically interested in leadership and followership, you're quite right. The ILA is is very much, has been and remains very much their home. Yeah. Well, and and just so you know, a number of scholars, that that whole conversation around followership becomes more and more and more prevalent in the dialogue, that they're just bringing it up, whether that's David Day or Ron Riggio or Bruce Avolio or Susan Comavez, any number of other individuals who are really recognizing again you call it the leadership system and i and 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 maybe that's a segue into the current book because what i loved about bad leaders was that we really started looking at the leader the followers and the context i believe that's the first book where you really framed it up as such and in this book again you start framing it up 
we, we can't just look at this individual in isolation, what's going on with followers, what's happening in the context. And so leaders who lust, for listeners, I'm going to just read a, something very quickly to kind of tee things up. And then I'd, I'd like to go down kind of a line of, of questions that I have about the topic, because it's a really interesting topic. Like I said, I've been spending my summer so far with you and Dr. Livingston, and it's been a good summer. You've been with me in baseball fields, primarily. That's where we've been. <laughs> I, I think I've always wanted to be on a baseball field with you, Scott. That's just great. Makes 13 me year, 13 year baseball, two hours at a time. Perfect. Love it. I'm the guy who's just in the corner reading when my son's not touching the ball. (laughs) But you write, leaders who lust have a fire in their belly that is impossible to douse. Leaders who lust have a life force that is impossible to slow, not to speak of stop. Leaders who lust have an appetite so enormous and relentless, it is impossible to ever fully satisfy. So, Maybe frame up or tee up the the background behind your interest. I know you write about it, but tee that up for listeners. And then I'd love to explore some of actually the end of the book. So thank you, Scott. Uh, let me just comment on the leadership system point that you made a few moments ago. The leadership system, you're right. When I wrote Bad Leadership, which came out in 2004, I, I stumbled into this this framework. I didn't have it as a framework at that time. I realized as I was doing the research, you can't talk about a bad leader without talking about bad followers. And you can't talk about bad leaders and bad followers without setting that, without putting them in their setting. Yes. Only years later did it occur to me that I kept repeating that template. Mm. And when it occurred to me, that's when I if it's not, doesn't sound too pompous to say I codified it into something that ever since then I have called the leadership system. Uh, in 2016, I published in Daedalus an article that I think was titled Leadership, It's Not a Person, It's a System, mm. which really spelled out how I came to this conclusion. And it is fair to say that I now never speak about leadership, never write about leadership without referencing all three components, which, yes, brings us to leaders who lust. But but again, I I have taught a course called the leadership system. I speak about it all the time. I convey, and every time I speak about leadership, I speak equally about followership and the setting within which this leadership and followership takes place. So with regard to leaders who lust, As you know, Scott, at least as well as I, the ideal of the contemporary leader is a person of balance. And indeed, many leadership scholars talk about how uh, leaders should be moderate, leaders should be, you know, we talk about work-life balance all the time. The idea that some leaders are kind of crazed, not saying they're crazy, I'm saying crazed, is kind of off the radar. We'll occasionally reference a Steve Jobs. Oh, my God, he was, you know, just fanatically dedicated to his work. But Steve Jobs or the kinds of people, the very few in number, Elon Musk is another, they are generally thought of as not like the rest of us. 
And heaven knows that in leadership courses, while we always try to develop leaders, we don't use either Jobs or Musk as a template for what we're trying to teach our students. Mm. So leadership, the whole field of leadership development, which actually dominates the leadership industry, how to be a good leader, leaves out this particular kind of almost fanatical leader. However, if you look at which leaders stand out, which ones are really exceptional, by the way, that word can mean good or bad. I'm not putting a value judgment. We go, oh my God, how many of them, whether in business or in politics, whether American or German or Russian or Argentinian, are people, are leaders who were single-tracked, obsessed, and the notion of lust, as you read the comment, is they never rest. And I, I will again invoke my favorite line in all of the leadership literature, which I do with some frequency. It is what Churchill said about Hitler in the 1930s when he was trying to warn the British parliament that at the time was not at all listening about Hitler, which was the line is his great line, as almost everything Churchill said or wrote was, his appetite, that is Hitler's appetite, grows with eating. That's what I mean by lust, meaning the more these leaders have, the more, we should say the subtitle of the book, which is very important, yes, leaders who lust, but the subtitle is power, money, sex, success, legitimacy, and legacy. Mm. And every one of those six lusts, which I and my co-author, Todd Patinsky, extracted from a larger array of lusts as being, lust as being much the most salient, every one of them, the word lust implies, if you're a male leader and you've slept with a thousand women, you want to sleep with a thousand and one women. Mm. If you're a leader who has accrued many, 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 many millions of dollars you want to accrue, even though you can't use it, you don't need it, you keep wanting to accrue it. And the same goes for power and the same goes for success, so forth and so on. So it, it implies lust, leaders who lust imply leaders who are fanatical and who are never, ever satisfied either until they die or something comes along to stop them other than death. Well, and this is where I want to go almost to the end, because it's towards the end where you have this list that really, obviously, the entire book stood out for me. I learned a lot about some people that I was not very familiar with. And I think it's, again, the leader followers context construct of looking at each of these cases is just wonderful. But to your point, I mean, one of the things you all say is lust is value free and, and lust can be good. I guess before reading this, I'd always had this just implicit thought that it was a negative always. But at times, it can do great good in the world, right? You write about Mandela, for instance. 100%. That chapter that you're talking about, which is legitimacy, has two men featured. One is Nelson Mandela, and the other one is Larry Kramer. Yes. Both represented groups that had been marginalized and indeed oppressed and suppressed. In the first case, obviously, uh, South African blacks. 
And in the second case, the American gay community, an oppression that came to a head, a particular crisis point during the onset of AIDS. Larry Kramer was absolutely the spearhead of it. I mean, some people will debate it, but I will maintain forevermore that Larry Kramer (laughs) is one of America's unheralded, he died quite recently, by the way, is one of America's unheralded heroes. We honor all kinds of leaders of all kinds of groups. For some reason, we do not honor leaders of gay groups. Uh, And Nelson Mandela, obviously, is one of the great heroes of the 20th century and indeed of all time. But yes, their lusts to make their community, to move their communities from the margin to the center was absolutely just as you say, Scott, I guess, depending on your point of view, but certainly I think you and I would agree and most of your listeners would agree. But I certainly take the point of view that uh, the lust to try to legitimize an oppressed group is a good thing. There are other lusts, such as the lust for power, that is probably almost always not so wonderful because it implies power over someone. And certainly the two examples that I use, one is Xi Jinping, who even since the book came out, which is like a half a year ago, is proving the point, which is that uh, China is becoming every week or every month or every day, a more, I use the word now, totalitarian, not simply authoritarian system. And Roger Ailes is the other example that we use, a man whose empire, which was Fox News, was so dominated by him that there was really no room for anybody else. Uh, But there are also people in the book like Tom Brady and Hillary Clinton, whose lust for success, I, I, that's, they're both in the chapter on lust for success, where we yeah. just stand back and look at why, you know, as you and I are talking in in uh, in mid-2021, Scott, it looks as if Tom Brady's going to keep playing. We have to ask ourselves, why does a man like that, what is the point? He's in his, I guess he's 44 now, something like that. He's in his mid-40s. He's got all the fame in the world. He's got all the fortune in the world. He's got all the success, all the glamour, the most gorgeous wife and lovely kids, why is he still playing? He is still playing because he loves being a leader. He loves being the greatest of all time. He cannot stop and will not stop until time stops him. Hmm. Well, and you, you, you speak of Hillary Clinton in that way as well. I mean, she just kept putting herself back in the ring, so to speak, and knowing that she would be it's the word i'm looking for brutalized yeah that that's the word that's the word right yeah i mean uh, that's a perfect way of putting it she kept stepping back in the ring even though she knew she'd be punched every which way every which direction uh you look at her by the way i i've since blogged about her because what one of the many things that's fascinating about this woman is how marginalized she is now You know, during the 2020 presidential campaign, we hardly ever saw Hillary Clinton. It's as if the Biden campaign decided, and indeed the Democratic Party more generally, that there was something about her that was somewhat toxic. Hmm. But to the larger point, this was a woman who gave up a safe seat as senator from the state of New York. She was widely recognized as being an excellent senator from the state of New York. She would be presiding over the Senate as we speak 
had she not decided to quit that seat and run again for president. So she could not, her lust was, for success was insatiable. And uh, whether or not it's because she was a woman, we can have a, we could have a long discussion about that, but she was punished for it. And interestingly, as I said, even now, she seems to me to be punished not just by Republicans who always loathed her, many, many of whom, most of whom, but also by Democrats who have effectively sent her to the equivalent of political Siberia. Hmm. Well, and, and another comment towards the end of the book that the two of you make is that lust attracts followers. Would you talk a little bit about that? Lust attracts followers. You know, I think, first of all, I think all of us are hardwired. You know, this is one of the great leadership conversations. You know, we're supposed to like, again, we're supposed to not want to follow people who are extreme, whatever yeah. that extreme is of. But we are, first of all, hardwired, in my view. I think there's ample evidence, just the way animals are. Other primates, certainly, and other animals, certainly. Hardwired. There's a reason we've heard the expression, man, I know this sounds sexist, but you'll forgive me, I hope. Man on a white horse, the hero in history. Those are phrases that come from someplace. Yeah. And they come because it is the nature of the human condition to long for, to seek a great leader, somebody who will save us from ourselves, who will lead us to a land of milk and honey. Yes. So, uh, so it is with, with leaders who lust. They seem to have an energy, a life force, a zeal, and a dedication to a particular goal. And we, we look at them with a measure of awe. And in some cases, we really, really, really do want to follow where, where they lead. Whether yeah. it is Warren Buffett with those annual conferences that he used to have. I was, just gonna, I was just going to mention him. Yeah. Could yeah, you talk I a little mean, bit about he, that? A hundred. Well, you know, he, people go, he's not a leader. Yeah, he is a leader. We admire Warren Buffett for his curious mix of personal modesty on the one hand, but vast accumulation of fortune on the other. And he is called, he's not called the Oracle of Omaha for nothing. Yeah. People are attracted to his mix of folksy, apparent folksy wisdom and incredible genius at making money. And for many, many years, now these those days, the hey, his heyday may well be over, but for many, many years, he would say to his legions of followers, uh, buy this or buy that, and they would buy this or buy that, and they would listen to every word that came out of his mouth. Again, these people have an appeal. I mean, Roger Ailes was, in many ways, for many people, awful to work for. Yet people stayed, you know, including women who were in a culture widely understood now to be one of sexual harassment. Yes. But if they thought they had a chance of making it in Fox News, Roger Ailes's dictatorial, somewhat abusive ways notwithstanding, they stayed. They didn't have to stay. They could have quit. Predatory. Predatory is another word. Predatory. Right? They yeah. stayed. Most of them stayed, crossing their fingers that they would succeed at Fox News. So we can look over and over again at these people. And by the way, I should throw in Trump. Trump is not a figure 
deliberately in this particular book. Mm-hmm. He is, by the way, the star of my next book, The Enablers. He's not a figure in this particular book, but you can't think of leaders who lust without thinking of Donald Trump. Donald Trump did not ever, ever lust for power, even though it's normally thought that he did. No, his lust was for money, mm. but his show of money, his ostentatiousness, his brazenness, again, as I don't have to tell either you or any of your listeners, was enormously attractive and remains, interestingly, again, as we speak in mid-2021, even now, though he's in the background, uh, we damn well know that if he appeared at some rally or another, he would bring out his base, which many of whom would remain as rapidly interested in, fervently supportive of Donald Trump as they were four years ago. Mm. Which brings me to a question. Can some of these folks that you that you highlight, these case studies, could there be multiple lusts that they're chasing? We've got JFK. Is it is it just sex or is it sex, power, legitimacy, right? Is it is it all of those? I mean, not legitimacy in the larger context, maybe somewhat, but but legitimacy within his family. How do you think about that? I think about it this way, Scott. Human beings are not widgets. Yeah, it's like in bad leadership. One of the characters in bad leadership was Bill Clinton. Yep. And I chose a single example, which was Bill Clinton in Rwanda. Which he himself later said uh, was the biggest single mistake he ever made to permit that genocide to unfold. He was not alone, by the way. Boutros Boutros Ghali was uh, head of the UN at that point. So he was by no means alone. There were other world leaders. But I singled him out, not because I was trying to say that Bill Clinton was across the board an awful leader, yeah. but because he did one very bad thing, allowed what is often called the most efficient genocide in human history to happen. And as I said, he himself regarded it as biggest mistake. So when I say human beings are not widgets, I say they are complicated. And you are quite right to say that just as Bill Clinton was bad on Rwanda, which is not exactly what you said, but the implication is he could be good and indeed was in many other ways. So it is with lust. Yeah. John Kennedy will be remembered for many things. His lust for power will not be among them. Mm. His lust for money will not be among them. Yes, he wanted to succeed, of course, otherwise he would never have become president. But if anything, it is said about him that his father wanted him to succeed more than he did. Mm. His father planted the seed when the first son died, that the next son should be president of the United States. John Kennedy was striking for his lust for sex. It is an astonishment now to read what went on in the early 1960s in the White House. Yeah. The man was insatiable. We didn't know it or understand it at the time. He remained married. But again, if we look at it now, and the other person that is described in this regard is the Italian uh, prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, Yeah. both men were in positions of power, to be sure. But what was arguably the most striking thing about them was their absolutely flat out, highly risky, insatiable lust for sex. By the way, sex is an interesting one because no woman even then would have ever gotten away with that kind of thing. 
But when we look at the presidency of John Kennedy now, he stands out in several different ways, uh, remarkably good looking and appealing and attractive. But if you know about his presidency in some detail, the lust for sex, this insatiable drive, non-stoppable, frequent, obsessive lust for sex surely stands at the top of the list of what singles him out and makes him different from, I think it's safe to say, any other, certainly president of the United States. Not to say that other presidents have had other women, have not had other women in their lives, that is other than their wives, but this was again, lust, meaning lots of lots of other women and insatiable. In the book, you talk about how lust is rare, but also just a powerful motivator. You two say perhaps the most powerful motivator this lust for wealth. And, and, and again, I love how in the section on Warren Buffett, we go back into his backstory a little bit. Let's talk, let's look at the context. What's the backstory on Warren Buffett that created this figure who has this, as you would say, insatiable lust for amassing wealth. It's a powerful motivator for these individuals. It's jet fuel. That's wonderfully put. I should have used that expression. It's jet, it's not it's not usual airplane fuel. It's not a little prop fuel. It is jet fuel. And there's a lot because of it. Because it, you know, it's a powerful motivator because it's a it's a life force. Yeah. It is this, and most of us don't have it. Yeah. It, it's not like ambition, it's not like greed, it's not like a desperate want. It's something really not typically, by the way. It's not, it's interestingly not often referred to this life force. We know that it exists, yep. uh, separating it from the leadership point. We know that there are some people who are driven and obsessive who have this life force, but they're not widely studied. They're not at all studied. They're not written about. And yet they, cha they often change the world. If you look at the great, whether they're scientists or explorers, what is an explorer, one of the, the great explorers of human history? They're obsessive, they're yeah. driven, they're crazed. They're people who lust. Yeah. But that characteristic or trait has not been singled out for study. And so we decided to do it. Yeah. I love it. It's, it's a wonderful book. It was a wonderful read. And again, I learned a lot about some of these individuals that I, I, I had not heard of Larry Kramer. I had not heard that story. Harvey Milk, of, you know, I'm very familiar with Harvey Milk and, and his story, but Larry Kramer, I, I didn't know it. And so it was a really wonderful opportunity to learn about some individuals. Charles Koch, I didn't, I, of course, I've heard of the Koch brothers, but I, I didn't know the backstory on that. And so I think your framing of this topic is really, and, and that last component, it's a powerful motivator, perhaps the most powerful motivator. It's very, very interesting. Thank you, Scott. I'm glad you liked it. Lovely to speak with you. <laughs> well, let me ask you one final question before yes. we wind down for the day. Yes. What have you been reading? What have you been thinking about consuming that has, has your wheels turning as of late? Well, I tend to, I keep thinking every leadership book I write is my last. Each time over, I swear never doing another one. 
Barbara, do you, do, are you lustful about writing? You no, know, I, I, that's a great question. And I, I would have, even a few years ago, I would have said no. And now I look in the mirror and I'm beginning to wonder what is going on with me? This is nuts. And my friends tease me about this endlessly, my family. Uh, but it does, you know, I'm, I'm never bored with the subject that interests us both. Yes. I yes. uh, never, ever find, I've been in this field for many, many years. I'm never bored with it. I'm always interested in it. And I would say the best answer I can give you, setting aside the specifics of what I'm reading, and it refers back to what you, you mentioned early on, the book I did in 2004, Bad Leadership. I think at this point in my life, between the enablers, and the subtitle of that is The Enablers, How Team Trump flunked the pandemic and failed America. And as its title implies, Trump is at the center, but he's really not the center. Mm. The center of the book are his enablers. It is a book about followership. It is a book about how bad followership enables bad leadership to happen. Wow. It's all about his followers, not about Trump. And the book that I'm now starting slowly to work on is, again, about bad leadership and bad followership, because it remains, I think, Scott, as far as I'm concerned, 99% of the vast contemporary literature on leadership, and we know there are a billion books out there, is focused on how to produce a good leader. Yeah. And way too little attention, way too little attention is how to stop a bad one. Ah. And so this next book, I think, uh, is going to be focused on that. So I think I tend to, you know, when I'm writing, I would say I tend to read mostly stuff that relates to what I'm writing about. Yeah. So. Well, Barbara, like I said, I'm a year behind you. So maybe next <laughs> summer we can talk about the enablers. <laughs> sounds, sounds good. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciated the conversation. Thank you so much for the Take work that you care. do. I love Hope hope our paths crossed in the next few months or at least the next year. Sounds good. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. I just love the work of Barbara Kellerman. I always love having a conversation with her and to see where her head is. You know, she's right. At times, individuals elevate who are not what we would hold as an ideal leader. And oftentimes I think there's a disconnect between who's elevating out there in the world and how we're talking about great leadership. So it's interesting. There's, there's a lot in that space to explore. And again, and I said it during the episode, but I love the framing of leader followers context. I think we are leader centric in our literature. I think we do not give the context enough credit, as some of our friends in political science would say. And I think we don't talk about followership enough. And so I think each of those elements, leader followers context, as Barbara would call it, the leadership system. I really love that framing. I think it's a fun way to think about leadership. I think it's a more accurate way to think about leadership and what it is that we are studying. It's not just that individual. There's a number of variables at play. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. I will reach out to Barbara again in about eight months and we'll talk about the enablers and she'll have another new book. I got to catch up. Take care, be well, and have a great day. 
You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phronesis. If you like Phronesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.